I will feast at the table of the Lord. I will feast at the table of the Lord. I won't hunger anymore. Welcome to the table. You are listening to the Kingstown Communion podcast with lead pastor Michelle Matthews. The Kingstown Communion is a new United Methodist Church existing to gather people into communion with Jesus Christ through courageous conversation, creative community, and collaborating for the common good. We worship at Island Creek Elementary School, 7855 Morning View Lane, every Sunday at 10 a.m. For more information about upcoming events and opportunities to serve, visit our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Kingstown Communion. We're glad that you're listening along with us. If you live close by, we hope you'll join us for worship in person. And if you ever feel so inclined to help us by giving financially, you can do so on our website, kingstowncommunion.net. series on um, on the toughest scriptures in the Bible, the ones that we misunderstand, the ones we don't really read often as often as we should. Uh, really, we've been working through those books of the Old Testament that have gotten a bad rep or have um, are the reasons why people say the God of the Old Testament is not my God, okay? So today we find ourselves in Judges, which I think is the worst book of the whole Bible. Um, And I chose this scripture long before all that's happened in the news the last two weeks. I just want you to know that, okay? Also, I also want you to know one more thing. Sorry, (laughs) I'm stalling. Uh, Other thing is, 
I also do not want to uh, re-traumatize anyone, so we will not be reading Judges 19, but I will tell you generally in, in, in my sermon more about it, okay? Moreover, the whole generation was gathered to their ancestors, and another generation grew up after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and worshipped the Baals, and they abandoned the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They followed other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were all around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and worshipped Baal and the Astartes. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the power of their enemies all around so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them to bring misfortune, as the Lord had warned them and sworn to them, and they were in great distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the power of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen even to their judges, for they lusted after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their ancestors had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord. They did not follow their example. And now for today's story. This is at the conclusion of the story. Then all the Israelites came out from Dan of Beersheba, including the land of Gilead. And the congregation assembled one body before the Lord at Mizpah. The chiefs of all the people of all the tribes of Israel presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 foot soldiers bearing arms. Now the Benjaminites heard that the people of Israel had gone up to Mizpah. And the Israelites said, tell us, how did this criminal act come about? The Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered, I came to Gebeah, that belongs to Benjamin, I and my concubine, to, se- to spend the night. The lords of Gebeah rose up against me and surrounded the house at night, and they intended to kill me, and they raped my concubine until she died. Then I took my concubine and cut her into pieces and sent her throughout the whole extent of Israel's territory for they have committed a vile outrage in Israel. So now, you Israelites, all of you, give your advice and counsel here. All the people got up at one, saying, We will not any of us go to our tents, nor will any of us return to our houses. But now this is what we will do in Gebeah. We will go up against it by lot. We will take ten men of a hundred throughout all the tribes of Israel, and a hundred of a thousand and a thousand of ten thousand to bring provisions for the troops who are going to repay Gebeah of Benjamin for all the disgrace that they have done in Israel. So all the men of Israel gathered against the city united as one. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. So what we did not read this morning was Judges 19. Honestly, uh, it is way too raw and horrific and um, I am not, I don't think the church should be about scarring anyone who that would cause memories to come up. When, when statistics show that one in three women have undergone sexual harassment or assault of some kind, one in six have experienced rape, 
I feel like it's a safe decision on our part <laughs> to not read this today. But, but what you didn't hear describes the rape and murder and dismemberment of an unnamed woman. This is not a crime committed by some outsider of Israel. God is not pointing to this sin and saying, that's what pagan or foreign people do, but you, my people, you are not to do this. No, the rape and murder and dismemberment of this unnamed woman, this crime, is committed by an Israelite. And in the story, God says nothing. We can't read Judges without turning a few chapters back, a few Sundays back in our current sermon series to Leviticus. The unnamed woman in the story is owned by a Levite man, it says, a member of the tribe of Levi. In Israel's story, Levites are folks who are set apart to protect the holiness of God and the purity of God's people. So Levites were often priests, the folks responsible for attending to the temple, attending to worship, instituting and enforcing the Levitical law and the holiness code and the purity code. If you remember what I said a few weeks back when we were studying Leviticus, when we asked why in the world do we have to read this book? Why in the world does this book matter for us as Christians when it gets such a bad rep? And we said that Leviticus teaches us how to worship, if you remember it beckons us to create holy spaces. It, it beckons us to guard and protect the holiness of God. This is what these Levites were responsible for, to guard the holiness and the purity of God's people. And the unnamed woman in this story is owned by one of these Levites. And the word you use to describe her in the Hebrew, pelegesh, can mean concubine or, or secondary wife or wife of lower socioeconomic standing. And these two, the Levite and the woman, are in intimate yet hierarchical relationship with one another. As the story goes, something happens, causing the woman to flee from her owner to her father's home. Some encounter that we are not privy to, we do not know that part of the story, but something makes her fearful, and so she runs. And after four months, the Levite runs after her. He's angry. He's a little emasculated. His security as a, as a man and as a leader in the community depends upon his property, which is she. And, and so he sets out in pursuit of her, supposedly to speak to her heart, he says. Instead, the Levite speaks for many, many days with the woman's father, Still, the woman has not spoken in this story. He, he eases the father's concern, and he waxes, waxes and, and wanes about how he has the daughter's best interest at heart. And the Levite eats and drinks with the woman's father for five days, finally pulling himself away from the table and taking um, the concubine with him. The, the Levite chooses to rest in Gebeah, an Israelite town, thinking that he's going to be safe among his kinsmen. But you see these, these tribes are constantly, constantly in competition with one another for favor, for power. Some tribes are known for their brute strength, some for their intellect. Some tribes are kingmakers, but not the Levites. He's not welcome in their town. Being tasked with guarding the, the holiness and purity of God among a people who 
are less and less holy, less and less wanting to do the will of God, less and less concerned with a certain way of being among tribes, now taking bribes from foreigners and worshiping other gods, the Levite man is despised by his own own people. He's mocked and he has trouble finding a place to stay, but finally he does. And without warning, the men of Gebeah, showing off their strength, drunk and and overindulged and having partied all night, barbaric almost, surround the house in which this man is staying and, and demand that he be sent out so that they might degrade him and beat him and rape him so that they may show him who has power. The owner of the house offers instead his own daughter and the unnamed woman to the crowd in exchange for the safety of this man. And the Levite himself seizes his concubine and throws her out into the violent mob for them to do whatever they want with her, her body offered for his own. At morning, she crawls back to the house where her master is staying and she collapses at the door. And the text tells us that the Levite rises the next morning and he's ready to continue on his way. He seems to have forgotten the hours of torture that brought this, his good night's sleep. And when he, he sees the woman's hands resting on the threshold of the door, all he can say is, get up. There's no answer. The man throws the woman on his donkey. After all, she's his property. And he arrives home, takes his knife, and it says he cuts her <laughs> into 12 pieces and sends them to the 12 tribes of Israel as a sign to say, don't you dare emasculate me. Don't you dare steal my power. Don't you try to assert your power over me. When the man tells his story and judges 20, which we read this morning, he never mentions his role in the crime. In fact, he completely retells it. I don't know what happened. They just stole her from me, and she was delivered to me dead. And so I cut her up for easy traveling and as a sign that they had not won. This story itself is horrific. There's betrayal and rape and murder and dismemberment. Even at the end of our reading today, those Israelites who are supposedly enraged by what has happened... (laughs) decide that united in anger and power and strength, they're going to march into Gebeah and give them hell. Israel's supposedly outraged response to this crime is to slaughter entire towns and then rape hundreds more women. And worst of all, God is nowhere to be found in this story. God's absence... God's silence is what is most horrific. In a similar scene in Genesis 19, divine visitors um, blind the lust-mad crowd in that story and rescue the women from being offered up. In Judges 19, no such rescue occurs. God does not stop the abuse. God does not even bother to show up afterwards to condemn the rape and dismemberment. The, the only thing in this story akin to an ethical command is found at the end of, of chapter 19. Everyone who sees the pieces of the woman's battered body say together, such a thing has never, 
ever been seen or done, not since the day the Israelites came up out of Egypt. Incline your heart to her. Consider it. Speak out. So God is silent, but we're commanded to speak out. Yet Judges 19 is not in the lectionary, not taught in any Sunday school class. I've never seen it in a Bible study curriculum. God's absence in moments of profound suffering and violence seems too hard a word to casually study, to graze over. So why is this in here? Why read Judges? Why were the early canonists deciding to put, put the Bible together, to piece it together, all these words of God? Why did they decide to put this in here? This is the exact reason that people say the God of the Old Testament is not my God. But Judges 19 is in the Bible, and so as hard as it is to find any redeemable or retunable thing, we, we must still try. And so here it is. God claims this story of God's absence as a part of the larger story of God's presence. Victims of sexual violence know the truth of that. Many victims have experienced their abuse as being abandoned by God. Yet we do not make enough space in our congregations for experiences of God's neglect. We want to know where you see God, not where you don't see God. We point a lot of fingers. We've done a lot of finger pointing this week, y'all. whole lot. Across the board, everybody's finger pointing. But let's be a little confessional today. The church has been a part of leaving victims of sexual violence voiceless. The church does not often incline its heart, consider the stories, or speak out. These last two weeks, as everything's been unveiling, the hearing and the confirmation, and wherever you are on that, I don't even care. I mean, I just, you know, that doesn't matter. <laughs> wherever you found yourself this week. But what I found interesting is how women in general who might identify with both might, might hear testimonies and, and feel like, I, I get how real that is. And I get how real that is. Or I just identify with this whole thing. I, I, I feel like I, I've met that person before. I feel like I, I know her. Women across the board do not agree. Not at all. Christian women do not agree at all. So, like, and then you ask, how is that possible? How is it in a, in a culture... Where, where one in three know intimately the experience of sexual harassment and, and assault, how you see a, a viable testimony and, and, you, and you don't believe her. How is that possible? How is that possible? How is it that we are so divided? And that's when I say, it's the church's fault. It's because of the church and because of the voicelessness we've created in the church, 
over time. There exists a generation of women who were never taught consent, ever. And I'm not talking about baby boomers. I'm talking about hundreds of thousands of us who were raised in church and came of age in a time of the millennium. In our world, we were taught that our bodies do not belong to us. God owned them, which was kind of code for men owned them. Our fathers got to tell us what to do. Our pastors told us what to do. Our husbands were waiting to tell us what to do. Not unlike the Levitical code, right? Not unlike the Levitical code, we were subject to a purity code and taught to walk a fine line between looking pretty, but not looking too pretty. This is, of course, the foundation of what is called the the 1990s Christian movement, known as the purity culture. A pendulum swing from, like, the free love of the 1970s to then the AIDS scare of the 1980s to the 1990s, where all was about abstinence. Everything was about abstinence. And so evangelical Christians, me included, I consider myself an evangelical Christian. You know, evangelical only means you believe in the good news of Jesus Christ, right? So evangelical Christians took it upon themselves to stop a generation from promiscuity. They, they forged a slogan, true love waits, manufactured endless supply of merchandise for this slogan, Purity culture, it's created right then, a subculture born in the church. Purity culture taught young girls to bear responsibility for men's lust. When we got dressed in the morning, we were supposed to ask ourselves what our grandfathers would think about our outfits. We wore t-shirts, some in my youth group did, wore t-shirts that said, modest is the hottest. Our our formative years were spent in shame over our bodies, in suspicion of our sexuality, and in, in earnest ownership over the behavior of men. When I was 13, I went to my youth pastor's wife, shaken up from my kind of first aggressive cat call directed my way, and she said, welcome to the world of womanhood, sweetie. That was it. I shrugged it off, and and I tried to shrug off the hundreds of others after that, right? And when I was 14, I was lying on my belly in the youth room, reading the Bible on the floor, and the youth leader told me to sit up. If a girl is horizontal around boys, it forces them to picture you naked, he said. It causes them to stumble. Don't cause your brother to stumble. We were taught that, that women who have sex before marriage are like a trampled rose, damaged goods, undesirable, unworthy of love. Sometimes the metaphor used in sermon illustrations was a chewed piece of gum. The pastor would then pass around the chewed piece of gum and ask if anyone wanted to chew it after he had. When I was 15, I was violently... Um, I. When I was 15, a person in my youth group was violently assaulted on a mission trip. And in response to that, which I was kind of involved in, I was there, um, but it wasn't to me. The response to that was, 
what were you wearing? When I was 13 again, I attended a purity retreat where I signed a pledge to save myself for my future husband. I didn't even, I didn't even think about what I wanted then because it didn't matter. My body wasn't my own. There was so much shame regarding sex that none of it, consensual or otherwise, was talked about. None of it. There was no difference. It was all sin. Many of us, whether we were conscious of it or or not, have been trying to untangle ourselves from this culture. So this is why it is not surprising to me that not all women agree And we almost can't blame them. We can't. Because it's been steeped. It's been steeped in this culture, this purity culture, which has led to rape culture. And many of us were taught to distrust women, beginning with ourselves. And so this is why judges cannot be read apart from Leviticus. Judges, the people of God, doing evil in the sight of the Lord is the direct consequence of a Levitical purity culture, a holiness code gone all wrong. A code meant to teach God's people to love God, but instead it taught them to fear. Fear what may happen to them. At the core of the purity culture is not holiness, it's control. Which is why we would do victims of sexual violence a world of good if we we followed God's lead in Judges 19 through 20. God says nothing. God does nothing except to let the unnamed woman's statement of God's absence exist on its own with no extra explanation, no rescuing her from the hell she knows. We would do victims of sexual violence a world of good if we let the story of God's absence here rest heavily in our congregations instead of insisting that God works in mysterious ways or that God has a plan to fix this. Reading texts of terror like this encourages those who have been scared to share their experience of God's neglect. It invites them, with the truth of their past, every ounce of it, to come to a place like this. There are lots of reasons to avoid reading Judges 19, but to read it invites God's present people to surround the wound of God's absence for some people as other texts in the Bible surround this one and provide redeeming, wonderful things to read about who God is. Turning your heart to the woman in Judges 19 and and speaking out is a way to give voice to the voiceless victim in your community. One out of every six women has been raped. You will be identifying yourself as a safe person if you bear this text. And be prepared for the response. The only other time I have ever preached or come close to talking about Judges 19, a woman came up to me 
with tears streaming down her, her face and said, I never knew my story was in the Bible too. Would you pray with me? God, thanks for making room for all of our stories. God, you are so big and, and, and so majestic that you are not in need of our defense of you. You don't, you, don't, you don't need us to come to your rescue. It's okay for us to sit in the absence because it gives us a glimpse into the hearts of other people and how they may be dealing with you. And how wherever we are on our journeys, wherever we are, even the wrestling with your absence is faithfulness. God, we confess that we have not handled well sexuality in the church. And it's not for this group to bear that burden today, but to just say, I'm sorry, God, for being, being sucked into it. That's not holiness. God, I long to be holy. I don't long to try to gain control. In the fullness of time, though, you sent Jesus who never shied away from a hard conversation and who, who meets a woman scarred by five divorces and says, that has nothing to do with who you are and how much you're loved. God, we sent your presence today and we join in that that prayer that you have taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. You enable me with a melody.